Okay, so page four. Signs and wonders are given to make us believe in the Messianic restoration. Surrender to Jesus as Messiah and walk wholeheartedly in obedience to Him. In this way, God demonstrates the, hour, the powers of the age to come to honor and glorify Jesus as the Messiah. And so this is where it gets down to the nitty-gritty on how you pastor and, and administrate the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and Acts 3 is a picture of how you do it well. And page 4. So Peter says to the paralytic on the way up to the temple, he says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So everybody in Jerusalem obviously had heard about Jesus of Nazareth. Expressed in Luke 24, haven't you heard about these things? You know, it, it was fairly common knowledge. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. So when Peter saw this, they come in, he's jumping, and, and there's all the commotion in the temple. He says, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. He's honored his servant Jesus as the Messiah because this man believed that God has honored Jesus as the Messiah in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And so it would be as though Jesus were taking him by the hand and pulling him up, and the man goes, you just healed me from, from being a paralytic. I believe that you're the one God has anointed. You'll raise me from the dead and, and restore my whole body. Um, you disown the Holy and Righteous One and ask that a murderer be released to you. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through Him as the Messiah that gives this complete healing as you have seen. So this explains the ambition of the church in the New Testament for God to perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Obviously, the name that is given Him, well, yeah, so in the scriptures, one's name represents who they are. Oh, I didn't put in references. But throughout the scriptures, from you know when Adam and Eve, uh, when Adam is named dirt, you know, and uh, it, Adam is taken out of the dirt, the Adamon is, and is named man out of dirt, and then Eve is named Eve, which, which is a play on living, because she's the mother of the living, and then they name, I don't know what Seth and, I mean, Cain and Abel, what their words are play on, but Seth is a play on appointed as the one, the seed appointed, and then all the way down, names are given to signify their destiny. And so Jesus is given the name Messiah, signifying his destiny, that that favor will rest upon Peace will rest upon all those whom he favors because his destiny is as the Messiah, like the angels sing. And so Jesus' name is not is given as Messiah, his you know, his birth title or whatever. He's the son he's Jesus, son of Joseph of Nazareth. But they give him the name Jesus Messiah because it represents his destiny. So it's in the name of Jesus Messiah that things are done to represent his uh who he is and his destiny. And moreover, name also represents a governmental position. 
And so like Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will give you a great name as a leader over this great nation and governance over this great nation. Like he says to David, I took you from the hills and gave you a great name from the pastures, a great name as king over Israel. And so... uh, so the name represents their destiny and their role uh, uh, governmentally. So thus glorifying the name of Jesus simply meant that Jesus was being confirmed as the Messiah, his, uh, the one appointed by, ju- by God as judge of the living and the dead. And so you have that uh, repeated in Acts 4. It's by the name of Jesus Christ whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Because under there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved and resurrected. There's submission to no other uh, man as Lord that will get you that will save you from a lake of fire. Acts four. Therefore, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word. Stretch out your hand. Perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord. So when signs and wonders are anchored as a witness in the age to come, then they are protected from becoming an idolatrous end in of themselves. The signs and wonders need a context, a name to glorify. Otherwise, they, uh, you just end up with shamanism in, in, various, in various forms. Right. So when he's like, uh, yeah, John, John 14, 11 through 15, is that, is that what? Right, because that's, that's the, if you flip over to page three, that's, you're exactly right, the point of John 14. Believe me when I say I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves, that God has anointed me with the Holy Spirit. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name. And so, yeah, the context of the greater works is to honor and glorify Jesus as the Messiah. And so I do believe, uh, I, I do believe in the greater works than these uh, at the end of the age, but with clear stewarding and clear context that get, that puts people's hope and faith in Jesus in the age to come at the day of the Lord rather than because right now historically it always gets context it always gets uh the man of God the anointed man of God gets honored and glorified as by his own great power and uh, and glory, and they always quote Isaiah sixty one, and it's just insanity. So, uh, so Acts eight on page five. Acts eight. Philip went down to a city because this is what you uh, you get the classic example of Simon the the sorcerer, and Simon throughout your apostolic writings is universally attributed with uh, with. Uh, being the founder of the various Gnostic movements. 
Um, so Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With evil shrieks, with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city, had amazed people, amazed all the people of Samaria. He had the, you know, the the name of the great power, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized both men and women. And so the great joy in the city was in context to the proclamation of Christ there and the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus as the Christ. And so the great joy wasn't over the, the healing of demoniacs and sick people, Though it was, the great joy was in what the healing of the demoniacs and the sick people pointed to, the good news of the kingdom and the name of Jesus, the proclamation of, of the Messiah. And so in context to that, verse 18, when Simon saw, because Simon was also baptized, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given on at the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And so he wasn't rejoicing at the news of the kingdom of God. He was rejoicing at the evil shrieks and people being healed at the activity of the Holy Spirit. Because it was his end in that situation. His real end was the glorification of his own name and self as by his own power and godliness he would make people be healed and people would follow him <clears throat> which is ironic that he's the father of gnosticism after this the the fathers say that he went to uh, rome and and uh, began a movement there out of which everything was spawned so give me also this ability so that everyone I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. You don't want to honor Jesus. You don't want glory and honor. You don't want to point to the kingdom of God. You want to be seen as... Uh, as the anointed and etc. Repent of this wickedness, pray to the Lord, for I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin, which is, uh, anyway. Uh, so, <clears throat> Acts 14 is even a more dramatic, uh, a more dramatic uh, example of where the context is not completely understood about the sign and the wonder. Simon, I think, had a fairly strong and clear context of what the kingdom of God was and the name of Jesus, what the Messiah was. And therefore, the context of the healing of, of the people and the casting out of demons was fairly clear. But Acts 14, you have Paul and Barnabas, and they go to... Uh, to Lystra, and you have signs and wonders happening, and because there's no context, you have a completely wrong response. And you have Paul trying to backpedal and say, no, 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 no. And so when people get healed, all the, peop the man begins to walk, and all the people come out screaming, the gods have come down. 
by your own great power, you've made this man walk, etc. And he says, why are you doing this? We're only men like you. We're just we're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things uh, and turn to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations go their own way. Uh, but he's shown his kindness by giving you rain uh, from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food, fills your hearts with joy. And so that's just kind of an overview saying, listen, he's been kind to all the nations of the earth, giving you rain, feeding you, and he's let men go their own way, but the day of the Lord is coming, and you need to repent. He's ruled in kindness over you, and he's allowed all these demons that you worship to remain, but he's commanding you to repent because the day of the Lord is coming, and this is what the sign and the wonder points to. But even with this, he had trouble keeping them from sacrificing to them. And so because of their lack of context and lack of, of meaning that the signs and the wonders were done in, the Jews come down and easily went over the crowd. Um, <clears throat> three, within the right context and interpretation, signs and wonders are absolutely necessary for the turning of the rebellious human heart and the firm establishment of faith in the age to come. And so, like uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved uh, to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and preaching about what? about the Christ and the kingdom of God, were not with wise and persuasive words, meaning, not meaning that he didn't use persuasive words. He argued throughout the book of Acts, he obviously argued and persuaded Jews to follow Jesus and argued persuasively, etc. His point is my message wasn't only with persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Your faith in what? Your faith in the resurrection and the kingdom. It's absolutely necessary for miracles to happen. And this, I mean, we all know this, regardless of if you believe in an immaterial heavenly destiny or a restored creation destiny. People don't believe God is real and believe whatever about whatever context of the day of the Lord they believe, unless they encounter God and miraculous things happen, generally. I mean, a lot of time, I guess sometimes they don't, but just in my own experience, people don't last long term and they're not established in their faith, whatever that end game may be, unless miraculous things happen and establish them in it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's always... People remain zealous, seeking after the Lord, remaining perseverant when they encounter the Lord and miraculous things happen. And not all people do. I mean, there's, there's those. I mean, I know people who zealously and, and wholeheartedly follow the Lord and, and haven't had a lot of miraculous things happen in their life. But generally, that's the point of miraculous things, that the Lord does miracles to establish us in our faith. And it's one thing to be established in your faith of going to a cloud, immaterial heavenly destiny someday. 
It's a completely other thing to establish your faith in this, in my life, being restored and glorified, and the earth being restored and glorified. And all the more when you witness to people, it's one thing to convince people that all of this is going to be destroyed and we're all going to face judgment and go to an ethereal place. Nobody knows for sure. You can't prove it because it's not real. But it's a completely other thing to convince and make people believe that God is going to consume this earth with fire and he's going to raise the dead bodily and we're all going to face judgment and he's going to judge the wicked and glorify the righteous and restore all of this. I mean, that's just completely cuckoo. So it's, I mean, it's, it's, and, and the problem is kind of divorcing the signs and wonders movement from just seeking God to do God things. And that's all, I mean, we're not coming up with an equation or a formula here. We're just saying, look, this is what we're after right here, and we're on a narrow path to get here, and we need God to do miraculous things along the way to establish us in our faith to get there. You know what I'm saying? And we need God ourselves. We need God when we talk to people. We need God to do things out of the ordinary in a creation that is groaning and subject to frustration to make us believe and make people believe that the testimony is true about the resurrection and the kingdom. So I just, I, I want to make that point because you get kind of this, even within teaching circles of the resurrection and the kingdom, you don't get a lot of emphasis usually because the signs and wonders are usually emphasized within the post-millennial dominionist circles, which don't have a day of the Lord theology. And then the guys who are premillennial day of the Lord, resurrection and kingdom don't emphasize signs and wonders. And it's like, it just becomes this abstract teaching that nobody really believes and lives according to. And so there's not a zealousness to seek the Lord to do miraculous things. And so, uh, so that's, that's really the point of this session is to encourage in your diagram that signs and wonders and miracles are integral to the church walking out uh, its function in this age. Uh, point four, this is a little uh, Jordan Anderson nugget from uh, last year. As Paul equates his sufferings as filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, the activity of the Holy Spirit could be seen and, and phrased as filling up what is lacking in the resurrection of Christ. Signs and wonders don't take away from the resurrection like suffering doesn't take away or add to the, the cross, but suffering and martyrdom point to and add witness to the suffering and martyrdom of the cross. And likewise, signs and wonders point to and add witness to confirm the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. How freaking cool is that? <laughs> Filling up what's lacking in the resurrection. I uh, like it. All right, uh, point E. 
concerning the activity of the Holy Spirit, the lack of association with the age to come, and the lack of attribution to the name slash role of Jesus as a Messiah has caused much confusion and great damage within the body of Christ. So, obviously, I can't address this subject without addressing the white elephant in the middle of the room, which is the charismatic Pentecostal movement, which by 2025 is estimated by most missiologists to consume about 50% of Protestantism worldwide. Because most of the world is not like the United States and Europe in reality. And, uh, and uh, uh, charismatic Pentecostalism is, is uh, extremely large in Latin South America, Africa, Asia. And so you have, a, you have a movement that emphasizes so heavily the activity of the Holy Spirit and almost nowhere within that movement that will be half of the Protestant uh, church in the years to come. Do you have any association of the activity and the powers of the age to come with the age to come in truth and the resurrection? And so I, I address just some of the uh, some aspects of that in a general way, uh, as general as I can be. But I want to make it pointed that uh, just to point out the pain, confusion, and suffering that is caused and some of the aspects that, that uh, some of the excesses and damage that's caused when there's not context for the activity of the Holy Spirit and when they're not pastored and administrated according to the Word of God and in truth. And so I'm not making any, uh, I'm, not, I'm not talking about our little peanut context here which is within that stream, I'm talking about the movement as a whole. So don't, uh, don't misunderstand me. So point one, the Pentecostal revival of the 20th century has been rife with confusion, disillusionment, burnout, jealousy, malice, greed, immorality, etc. And so, I mean, from, from the get-go of when the Assemblies of God unified uh, you know, 10 years after Azusa Street and all of the mayhem that ensued over the next two decades uh, with the Assemblies of God and, and the rest of uh, the de- denominations and against Charles Parham's wishes that they, he begged and pleaded that they would not do it. But, uh, but they did it and it, it was just disaster through the 20s and 30s. And then the healing revival of the 40s and 50s and like the the testimony of many you might have heard about of how it just got so out of control and the glory and the honor with the signs and the wonders and people getting in fist fights backstage to see who could go out and preach on stage and it was just completely out of control and the strange doctrines that came out of that and the cult followings William Branham etc and uh, and then the charismatic renewal and the restored apostles and prophets doctrines that came out of that, which led directly into the shepherding movement and, uh, and all the abuses that happened there spiritually, physically, in every form. And uh, uh, it just kind of continues on and on, even to the present day where you have just the 
plethora of modern charismatic Pentecostal leaders that have just fallen into gross sin and immorality that is, I mean, uh, I, uh, I brought a, a, uh, an article, one of the guys, uh, Lee Grady, who's the editor for Charisma Magazine, has really received a lot of attention lately because for so many years he has simply, being the editor of Charisma, he's pointed out, listen, the charismatic, he's not from the outside, he's on the inside, a corrective voice over and over, and uh, just saying this is totally out of control when you have the U.S. Senate investigating the top, you know, six of the top televangelists. You have, uh, like it says, in recent years, Grady has attempted to correct some of the movement's high-profile names amidst both their financial successes and public troubles, including divorces, foreclosures, investigations. Many unbelievers now associate ministers with wife-swapping, wife-beating, no-fault divorce, gay affairs, and 10,000-a-night hotel rooms. So if you know anything, each one of those characterizes the life of a, a major public ministry, uh, healing, signs and wonders ministry. And then he goes on to describe a, num- a number of uh, the major leaders, Thomas Weeks, uh, Earl Polk, Paula and Randy White, Ted Haggard, Paul Kane, Benny Hinn, Todd Bentley. And so he's just re- he's encountered so much where it's just, I mean, it's not even, the early church wouldn't even allow these men into their fellowships. And yet, these are the men leading the the main thrust of the charismatic Pentecostal movement that all the nations of the earth are looking to for leadership. Latin and South America, Africa, Asia, it's these people that are being seen on TV and modeled and patterned after, seeking to emulate these people's lives. And uh, and so it's, uh, it's really it's staggering and heartbreaking in the equation. But uh, I think the, the primary reason is simply because, uh, well, one of the reasons... Uh, is uh, just uh, a lack of clarity on the things that they're pushing for so heavily. So because of this, the uh, New Apostolic Reformation, which is what a number of people have, including uh, Peter Wagner, who is kind of a well-known church growth guy who is a a leader within the movement, self-terms the whole movement, the New Apostolic Reformation, referring to from kind of Azusa Street forward. Uh, It's widely fallen into disrepute. Uh, Point two, without clarity on the purpose of the Holy Spirit as a helper and witness to Jesus and the age to come, signs and wonders become an end to themselves. The anointing becomes idolatrous, the hope and goal of the Christian faith, and Jesus kind of becomes a servant and butler to the anointed ministry that makes it happen. And so uh, I've I've sat through numerous uh, teachings and conferences where men will teach for an hour, uh, hour and a half, and and they teach on the anointing, and the name of Jesus is literally never even mentioned. And all that is, it really is just Christonaturalistic shamanism. I mean, that, that's the only way to describe it. It's just shamanism in a modern context. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's disastrous because 
There, and, and because of the context, there's no, there's no emphasis on holiness and righteousness because, uh, again, within a dominionist context, it doesn't, that's really not an integral part to the theological system. Because all that matters is more money and power to establish the kingdom of God on earth. So, um, uh, point three, the lack of clarity on the age to come and our identity as a sojourning people has resulted in great damage to the body of Christ regarding holiness. Human beings were created to walk in holiness and righteousness in the beginning. The earth will be holy and righteous in the age to come. The day of the Lord will establish this holy and holiness and righteousness. We are commanded to produce fruit of holiness and righteousness in keeping with our repentance concerning that day of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit is given to help us walk in holiness and righteousness in light of the age to come. And so it's just so central to the theology of everything that it used to be holy and right. And it will be. And we are the people who produce fruit in keeping with that being established on the earth. And we're the witness of that being established on the earth. And so the signs and wonders mean absolutely nothing if they don't confirm a message of holiness and righteousness and repentance demanded in that context. Uh, point A, the Spirit is essentially a holy spirit, and likewise the anointing is essentially, essentially a holy anointing. The Holy Spirit is uh, given to keep us on a narrow path of walking out our salvation with fear and trembling concerning the day of the Lord. Um, and then there's just the utter, because of this lack of context, there's not the emphasis and press on holiness. And then when all of this just absurd immorality and financial indiscretion happens, it just gets swept under the rug and, and ignored as not really that important, except to the wake of people's lives who are destroyed. And to those people, it's really important. But the rest of the movement is not really that important because it's not that important to their interpretation of the Word of God. So I just want to give that to you, uh, not in a condemning, uh, uh, self-exalting spirit, but just so that you have kind of a grid and, and kindness yet severity towards it, like the Lord has. You know, kindness and, and appreciation for zealousness for the acts of the Holy Spirit and, and appreciation for the men who walk in that movement and really do seek God, but severity for look at the damage and confusion that it causes in the wake of it. Okay, uh, signs and wonders reinforce prayer which is kind of self, uh, self-explanatory. self I'm going to skip A so that we can get down to uh, the last page. Prayer is sustained positively and negatively in the life of the assembly through signs, wonders, and miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, which witness to the powers God will exert in the age to come. Like drops of rain before the coming storm, so is the Spirit before the day of the Lord. And so the Spirit is given before the day of the Lord, to awaken us from our slumber, from that darkened heart, to bring us onto a narrow path and to keep us on a narrow path before the day of the Lord. And uh, it's the same way like an allowance is given to a child 
It is the substance of the inheritance. The rain is the substance of the storm. It's not the storm. The allowance isn't the inheritance. The whole point of it, though, is what it's supposed to produce. It's supposed to produce a self-restraint and a sobriety in the child to walk according to the will of the father that he might inherit the estate of the father. The rain is meant to produce the sobriety that the level five hurricane is coming around the corner and that we need to walk accordingly. And there's joy and rejoicing on the other side of that hurricane because everything gets, all the wickedness gets destroyed by it, but there's sobriety, there's sobriety uh, leading up to it. And so it drives us to the place of righteousness and seeking uh, of repentance and seeking the Lord and that we might walk worthy of our calling. So Acts 2, they're filled with the Spirit. They say, what does this mean? What does it mean? And he says, let me explain it to you. The Holy Spirit is given in context to the day of the Lord. And the prophesying and the dreams and visions and signs and wonders is given positively. And then the signs of blood, fire, and smoke are given negatively to, uh, to warn people. Like Acts 2, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe, the Greek word phobos, fear, in the King James, New King James, came upon every soul and many signs and wonders were done through the apostles. And so you have the positive fear, encouraging fear, and then Acts 5, you have the negative fear, that's godly fear, like Paul talks about, I wrote to you, I forget where it is in Corinthians, but uh, he talks about how it produced godly sorrow. He spoke severely and it produced godly sorrow in them that led to repentance. Um, Acts 5, when uh, Ananias and Sapphira fell dead, great fear, Phobos, came upon the whole church and many signs and wonders were done. Page 8, spiritual gifts are thus ultimately meant to strengthen the church in and faithful sojourning. Unto the age to when the age to come is ushered in, the goal of the Spirit's ministry is the age to come, rather than glory, honor, and riches in this age. Because generally, the ministry of the Spirit within the charismatic Pentecostal movement is almost always in context to glory, honor, and riches in this age. Almost always, in my experience, I mean, it is always about. In one form or another, God is going to anoint you and raise you up and millions of people and lots of money and and uh, big ministry, etc. Which is not, those things aren't negative or bad and I, and I don't want to uh, discourage anyone from great impact, but, uh, but uh, the great impact has to be uh, severely... Uh, disciplined and and pastored, otherwise it causes disaster. So, Revelation 19, Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, which is clearly the wedding supper of the Lamb is the initiation of the kingdom of God. Isaiah 25 and throughout the, uh, the uh, synoptic gospels. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. At the kingdom of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said, Do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
And I saw heaven standing open. There before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. And so you see the context. The wedding supper of the lamb and the Jesus on the white horse who judges and makes war. The testimony, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony to the wedding supper and the one who judges and makes war. Uh, now, First Corinthians twelve. The, this First uh, Corinthians twelve is obviously the the clearest uh, portion of Scripture that clarifies and pastors the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so, the main point I want to make here is that the context of First Corinthians twelve through fourteen is the day of the Lord and the age to come, which is clarified by chapter fifteen in the declaration of the gospel and the resurrection in the kingdom. But we'll just work through it to, to uh, give kind of clarity so that as you leave this place, you aren't discouraged, because this is what I found in my own life. Like when, when I was uh, my first year of college, I ate at this little barbecue place and uh, ate this dry rub barbecue and threw it up. And ever since then... You know, the last 15 years, I can't eat barbecue but once or twice a year, regardless, even though we have Jack Stack right down here. Like, it just, because of that experience, and so what happens with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, when you see the gross uh, adulteration of it, the self-glorification uh, and exaltation of the movement, the immorality, it makes, because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you it makes you want to vomit it from your presence and you can't stand to be around it and it may in it and in my own life i've just found an aversion to the gifts of the spirit because of the context that they've been so adulterated in and so i i i want you to be able to walk out here and zealously seek the things of the spirit and pursue and earnestly desire but but clearly pastor them and administrate them according to the word of God and not let them exalt themselves or uh, let people misunderstand that it's by you or your own great power because that's always what happens historically in the charismatic Pentecostal movement is that it whether the you know opposite rhetoric gets said but what always happens in the mind of the whole and the people is He's anointed with signs and wonders because of his godliness and his great power. And that's why he's the anointed man of God. And that's always why, that's always the bottom, uh, bottom message in everybody's mind. Anyway, so 1 Corinthians 10, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another effects, effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing of spirit, spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things according to each one individually just as he wills. And then he goes into the body analogy. And each one person within the body that the spirit gives gifts to is equally important. And just because some people, not everybody walks and all the and all the gifts, God hasn't designed it that way because that's how it's generally presented. There's rhetoric otherwise, but what gets presented, 
People imitate the platform. They don't listen to any of the teaching. They see the platform and they do it. And so you get people up there that embody all the gifts of the Spirit in one man. And that's what Paul is saying. You don't need any jealousy or envy because you don't walk in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Desire them and seek them, but don't don't let insecurity overcome you in the equation. And so he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts and I will show you a still a more excellent way. And then he goes into love. And, and if I walk in all these gifts of the Spirit but don't have love, then it's worthless in the situation. And then verse 8, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there's tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away with. If, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, at the day of the Lord and the resurrection, the partial will be done away with. And so that's his point. All the gifts of the Holy Spirit are only meant to help us stay on a narrow path and walk according to our calling. But the most important thing is that we walk in love and righteousness, because that's what's going to endure into the age to come. The gifts that the Holy Spirit is giving now will pass away when things are made right and perfected, when creation is restored. But what doesn't pass away is love and righteousness and holiness. Therefore, emphasize and hold in highest honor love and righteousness and subject the gifts of the Holy Spirit to those things. Because this is what the Corinthian church is struggling with. It's... Commentators all agree that the Corinthian church was walking in all of these gifts, but glorifying and honoring itself, and it was, calling, it was causing all kinds of division and strife and malice in their midst, and jealousy, and immorality was happening, and there wasn't a check on it all in a, in a clear context. And so that's his point. He says, and then he does an analogy. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with the childish things. And so the analogy is, is that God, the gifts of the Holy Spirit in this age are like childish things. But when we become a man in the resurrection, God will do away with the childish things and they won't endure. So don't exalt the childish things, the gifts of the Spirit in this age, as supreme. Exalt love and righteousness as supreme, as what will endure into the ages to come, and use the gifts of the Holy Spirit as God intended them to, to edify and strengthen the church, which is what he goes into in chapter 14. To edify and strengthen the church to walk in faithfulness and righteousness in their sojourning that they might receive a rich welcome into the kingdom to come. And so um, he says, uh, for now we see in a, mem- in a mirror dimly. And so he uses, that's another beautiful little analogy that the gifts of the spirit are a dim mirror like you've. I mean, you've heard it in a hundred sermons that they didn't have like crystal mirrors like we have. They they shined metal and you could see a mirror, kind of a dim reflection of yourself, kind of a fuzzy reflection. And so the gifts of the Holy Spirit are meant to be a reflection of the resurrection in the age, in the age to come. He says, uh, he says, uh, for now we see in a the mirror dimly, then face to face. At the day of the Lord. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, 
just as I have been uh, fully known. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And so we'll get to that in a second. But one may one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation in their sojourning before the the fullness to come when we see face to face. Um uh, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Uh, you also, since you are zealous, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. What is the outcome then? So Paul is not condemning the zealousness for the spiritual gifts. He's encouraging the zealousness. He's just saying, put your zealousness for the spiritual gifts in context to when you won't have spiritual gifts anymore in the age to come and exalt love, honor, and righteousness, uh, uh, love and righteousness in this age. He says, what is the outcome then, brother, when you assemble, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all these things be done for edification. But all things, all the gifts of the Spirit must be done in an orderly manner. And then he doesn't change idea. He says, now... I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. So in context to the gospel and the resurrection and the kingdom, let all the gifts of the Spirit be done in an orderly manner and, and stay zealous after them, but especially prophecy. Why? Right, but the prophecy in, in this context isn't prophesying the age to come. It's personal prophetic ministry like we think of. It's, it's encouragement about what's going to happen in the future in this age. And the gift of the spirit of prophecy is to be sought most because it's the most effective and faithful sojourning. Okay, Because this is what happens in our lives. Because the road is always like this. It's a twisty-turny road. It's not, it's not just a straight, easy, narrow path. It's a narrow path that goes like this because God's designed it to go like this in our lives because we have darkened hearts. And so he makes our lives go like this and we don't see it coming and we get sideswiped in trials and tribulations. But it's the, it's the prophetic ministry that ahead of time goes, look, there's going to be a curve in the road right here. There's going to be a curve in the road right here and a curve in the road right here. And so that we don't lose heart and it strengthens us to continue zealous and faithful on our narrow path unto our entrance into the kingdom. So, for example, this is like Agabus in uh, Acts 11 exemplifies this where he says, uh, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for the whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some of the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And so he he predicts a severe famine is coming and the point is is uh, that it's meant to strengthen the church that's gathered at Antioch that, look, it's going to be hard to eat in the days to come, but don't let it curb your uh, zealousness and 
in staying faithful to your calling. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it's meant to keep, uh, keep the church on narrow path of sojourning. And, and then, uh, what's the other one in, uh, in, uh, Agabus? Cause he comes up again. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. There's gotta be a reference. 28, 2110. And so, uh, 2110. So, um, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming over to us. He took Paul's belt, tied it, tied his own hands and feet, and said, The Holy Spirit says in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. So the gift of prophecy is meant to... The reason it's so highly exalted is because it is so more than the others keeps us on that narrow path and keeps us girded and prepared for what's going to happen in the future. And the problem is, is the prophetic ministry generally in the body of Christ, because it has no anchor point in the age to come, the, the overarching banner of the prophetic ministry isn't faithful sojourning unto your inheritance in the age to come. And so people, the banner over most of the modern prophetic ministry is glory, honor, and riches in this age until you go to heaven. And so everybody prophesies according to their faith, and the bulk of the prophetic ministry is you're going to get big glory, honor, and riches in this age. Rather than the design of the prophetic ministry is there's hardships and troubles coming. Around every turn, the Holy Spirit tells me, hardships, troubles, persecution, difficulty. All right, But I'm grateful for that gift of the Holy Spirit prophecy because it edifies and exhorts me, it, it edifies and exhorts the church to walk faithfully and not become discouraged. This is beautiful. I love the Lord. He's weird, but I love it. All right, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your kindness towards us in all of your ways that you have committed to keep us from all the ways of the world and wide roads of destruction, we ask you by your grace and mercy that you would lead us not into temptation, you keep us on a narrow path and that we will walk worthy of, uh, of the calling, God. And we earnestly desire gifts of the Holy Spirit. We ask you, God, that you would pour them out in our lives. In truth and in reality, we ask you for dreams and visions, for uh prophecy, healing, miracles, we ask you in this group, in this room, God, that you would give us the gifts that you have promised that we might be faithful and testifying to your Son in the day of the Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.